afternoon. You are listening to Don Land Signals on WERU-FM. Don Land Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change here in the Don Land. We explore topics such as restorative justice, restorative practices, decolonization, cultural revival, and more. Our guests are people involved in aspects of truth, healing, and change work. This program is offered in an effort to share, inspire, and inform. Don Land Signals is a collaboration of Wabanaki Reach and WERU-FM. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard. Good afternoon. I am your co-host, Esther Ann. The University of Southern Maine Land Recognition Committee was recently organized to provide recommendations for an aesthetic representation of land acknowledgement for the new buildings that are being erected on the Portland campus. The LRC quickly delivered these aesthetic and space recommendations, but then they went further to make 15 specific policy recommendations to ensure that this land acknowledgement become more than a gesture. The university is currently implementing one of those recommendations. They are working to hire and retain a native student coordinator to support native students at USM. The first native student coordinator position um, was created in the 90s um, to meet the demand of native students, the members of the American Indian Students Association who staged a nine hour sit-in in the then USM President Richard Patnow's office. Uh, that was on January <clears throat> uh, 1996. And since the creation of that position, Wabanaki have served in that role, uh, but the position has been unfulfilled since 2016. Somebody might correct me, it could be 2015. Time, uh, the past few years have, have changed my, uh, my perception of time. <laughs> and it has been unfulfilled these years, leaving Native students without adequate support. So we're so excited to have as our special guest today, Miku Paul, who was part of both the sit-in in 1996 and the latest efforts of the Land Recognition Committee. Before we welcome Miku onto the show, we want to first start with appreciating the land. Thank you, Esther. I'm really excited to have this conversation with Miku as well. But first, let's just take a moment to acknowledge the land beneath our feet. Wabanaki, the land of the first light, the dawn land, land that has known Wabanaki ancestors, the tallest trees and the oldest rivers, land that has known peace and conflict, land that has nourished us and sustained us since time immemorial. We acknowledge the indigenous peoples of this land, Wabanaki, the Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, and Abenaki, and we give thanks to your stewardship and resilience. Nadal Nabem Nawuk, all my relations, we are broadcasting from WERU studio in Blue Hill, Alamusik Wabanaki. Well, we won Maria. I always like that part of our show because it it helps me calm down a little. <laughs> I'm so excited to jump in. Um, so I'm pleased to welcome Miku Paul, 
She is a First Nations poet, visual artist, storyteller, and activist. She was born into the Maliseet Nation and is a member of Kingsclear First Nation in New Brunswick, Canada. She currently works and lives in Portland. And I got this off her Wikipedia page. She's got a Wikipedia page. <laughs> Welcome, Miko. I'm so glad um, to have you here today. Why don't you uh, share what you want to share about yourself and then talk about what happened back in 1996 at USM. Okay. Um, so I was born up at Penobscot. And my mom was born in Holton. But I'm most closely affiliated with that community, um, Penobscot. Spent a lot of time on the river growing up, went through public schools there, graduated high school, and wasn't planning on going to college. But my teachers encouraged me and supported that transition. It was very tough. It took me almost 10 years to get my undergrad degree. But I did later in life realize the uh, incredible value an empowering uh, effect of an education, particularly when you're trying to talk to people who may not respect you or recognize you. Sometimes when you have a credential, uh, that changes the dynamic. So I've been uh, here since 1986 in Portland. After my mom passed, um, I just uh, moved away to New York for a few years, but I was lonely for my home. So when I came back to Maine, I had landed a job in the daycare center at USM, a brand new startup program. I had been studying early childhood and human development. So that was where my odyssey at USM began. That was 1986. Wow, 1986. I didn't realize you had lived in Portland that long. So you started at USM as an employee, and when did you decide to go to school? Well, I didn't quite have my undergrad degree finished, and one of the challenges faced by all students in the UMaine system, of course, is that the uh, different UMaine system campuses do not always honor credits earned at different campuses. And I had been in the Brightman School of Human Development at UMO a couple of years. I had been at UMaine Farmington, very different style of campus there. And so I was really wrestling with how can I um, somehow finish my degree? I had a good job, but um, I also was losing credits in that process of uh, becoming a formal student. I know there's some strange word for it. Matriculating. Matriculated, <laughs> yeah. 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 So I like, you know, when you said it took you um, a while to get your undergrad, I, I don't think that that's an unusual experience. Um, I know that it took me, it took me a long time. I graduated high school in uh, 85 and I finally got my undergrad at UMaine um, in 90. Three, and I had already had um, I had a child in between, and you know I went back and got my graduate degree in '97. But it it takes a long time, and it in my experience it was it was real would have been real easy to start thinking there was something wrong with me <laughs> because it's you know taking me so long, and all of the things that I experienced. You know I I remember 
being, um, you know, the only one that asked for help or asked for extensions and all of these things. So I, I, I'm glad you said that. I really want people to realize how much of a, an accomplishment it is for Native people to graduate from these institutions when they have so many challenges. Yeah, Miku. You know, yes, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I really appreciate in your, your storytelling your longevity and your involvement, you know, with Native issues. You know, you go back a long way you know, over the decades and, um, you know, I've been caused to think about this, um, that change takes a long time lately. And so Mm -hmm. when Esther mentioned the um, Native student coordinator position at USM, you were involved uh, early on in making that happen. You were a, a shaker and mover at that time, you and Esther, correct? Yes. Yeah. I, I was working at the daycare and going to school at night. And as Esther mentioned, uh, for many of us, perhaps less so now, but in the past, it was a sort of try again, repeated effort to complete our baccalaureate degrees. Um, and we had difficulty communicating with the university administration uh, and helping them understand why that was so. Uh, because you cannot push, you know, a, a square peg into a round hole. And I think whenever you have someone at the university who has different needs, that those needs should be respected, as well as acknowledging the contribution of their diversity to the university community. Um, so I had really been part of the pluralism initiative and uh, Week of the uh, Young Child um, and different things through the daycare, but I encountered a lot of flack and uh, just general discomfort as an undergraduate student um, in the different ways of doing things and what I felt was a lack of respect for my identity and perspectives. So we had formed a Native student group and What happened to my recollection is that we realized we needed institutional support for the red tape, for the bureaucratic challenges around getting and staying in college. We needed more flexibility around how we eventually met the demands of our degree, the requirements. And we discovered that at USM at the time, the international student body was smaller than the number of native students that were at that campus, but they had their own office. They had a coordinator and they even had an admin. We had none of Mm. those things. And that really galvanized us to take some kind of action. We had to figure out how to go about that, but that's what triggered everything. Wow. So, so what happened? Um, what was the action that started uh, to to uh, formulate there at USM at this time? Well, I'm hoping you'll chime in, Esther Ann, on this. But we we found a uh, consultant to work with us, and I don't know, maybe Esther, and you can speak to that more, and maybe talk about irate. 
And it was really useful at the time because when you are a student and you're already feeling against it, you're not feeling empowered, it can be very challenging to know which steps to take to create change. And so I think that our consultant, Kathy McGinnis, did that for us. And she had a very uh, respected um, history and uh, amount of experience in activism herself uh, under um, things like the Americans with Disabilities Act. But she really knew the drill. She knew how to organize and set things up. And so we kind of worked with her. I can remember we even had a little workshop training because we had to be taught how to appropriately act in unison and link our arms and calmly not let anyone stop us from entering President Patton's office. So that really made it real. Yes, it was. Um, I smile just listening because I'm, I'm, all these memories are coming back. So irate. Um, was a local group of some mostly um, Wabanaki women. It stood for Indigenous Resistance Against Tribal Extinction. And we started organizing um, really around the the cultural appropriation that was really rampant in the 90s. You don't see a lot of that as it was back then. And, you know, tribal people were asking for help. Like, so we started organizing um, just a few few of us women and um, some students from USM, Miku included, uh, reached out to us for help. And we had um, been working with Kathy and she, Kathy McGinnis in, from South Portland. And she really, um, she taught us a lot. Uh, you know, I can still, some of her, some of her lessons I've used throughout my whole life in learning how to interact and engage with um, the with the powers that be right <laughs> like she she taught us things about how, how to you know enter a, a meeting if you're having a meeting with somebody how to enter the room and where to sit you know where how why it's so important uh, where you sit is important and how to use your body language and like Miku said how to, how to do civil disobedience and and how to <clears throat> you know um, write real effective uh, press releases and I mean you name it we we learned it, and it was it was so valuable to have uh, those <clears throat> lessons while we, we were learning them, while we were doing them, and we were enacting change while we were learning how to do, do this community organization, uh, community organizing. So the the students had I know some some of the students in the group had had some um, rate incidents where they faced some microaggressions and not so microaggressions from faculty at USM. And they were just, they were really tired of trying to advocate for themselves when their job was to go to school and they had all of these challenges. So they reached out to irate and we, we helped, you know, as Miko said, we helped um, with all of these methods and strategies of organizing. And, but it was really the students that, that did, they're the ones that did the work, you know, they, um, they walked into that president's office, they had everything to lose, Irate didn't have anything to lose, we weren't even, a, uh, you know, we were community members, we weren't associated with the university, but those students were so, it was fun, but it, they were so brave, I mean, when you think about it now, geez. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> nine hours, we were. Yeah, 
Yeah. So part of the problem for me at that time was that if I was consulted or accessed for my perspectives, it seemed like there was a sort of default setting, you know, what we might call that tokenism, you know, these days. Um, But at that time, USM was really very much, it seemed in a multicultural mindset as opposed to true inclusion and diversity. And it, it does wear on you when you go to classes and you're giving your opinion and you're supposed to be discussing history and issues and what have you. Um, and you're coming from a very specific perspective that should be valued. Um, oftentimes, you know, you get shut down, you get insulted and you're supposed to just sort of suck it up. I remember being on the pluralism initiative and sitting around with faculty and top administrative staff back in the 90s. And we all took turns going around the table and they all chanted what they were going to do for pluralism. And they were going to have a chapter on, you know, some other culture and they were going to have a, I don't know, a reception in a food event or something. And then it came my turn and I said, well, look, this all seems nice, but really what we all have to do is sit here and look inside yourselves. And that's where the shift needs to take place. And then the faculty member immediately following me totally ridiculed me. I wanted to just walk out of that meeting. And he said, well, you know, I'm not saying anything so deep or anything like that. But it was, I think now I understand it was designed to silence me. And at the time I did stay in the meeting, but it makes you want to stop the struggle when you encounter that over and over and over and over. So that camaraderie that we had, the strength in the group, ended up being really important um, to to the success of that sit-in, which was the longest sit-in in in the history of University of Southern Maine, which is the second largest humane campus in our state. Yep. Wow. Tahoe, that's that's, uh, wonderful. So I I just want to pause to let folks know that you're listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU-FM. I'm your co-host, Esther Ann, along with Maria Gerard. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today, um, time's really slipping. I can't believe this is going so fast. I know we're going to run out of time. (laughs) We're talking about the history of Native activism at USM with our guest, Miku Paul from Maliseet First Nation in Portland, Maine. So I'm dying to hear more. I feel like I keep... uh... (laughs) So you all learned uh, some community organizing tactics. And so it was the Native American student group that was uh, engaged and that they also had the support of uh, outside, um, outside Native groups such as irate. So with all your uh, newfound learning and tactics, I want to hear more about when you visited the president's office. Do you remember, Esther Ann, I I remember someone actually taking me by the arm and uh, my heart was pounding, but I remembered that Kathy had told us what to say. So I looked at his arm and I looked at him and I said, just please let go of me. 
And that was a, but it was a moment for me because I didn't think that that would happen. And I think that underscores uh, a, a common problem with the dominant gaze and how people look at indigenous folk. I remember Sherry Mitchell getting out at Nabizan and saying, that, uh, here's a PSA for you. This isn't a petting zoo. Mm. But for someone to feel uh, somehow entitled to put their hands on you is a very strange feeling. Yeah, we um, from, you know, it, it was a long time ago and um, my memory isn't the best, but I remember uh, it, it came, we decided we're going to go into his office and we're not going to leave until he meets our demands. And Kathy was real you know, it's a demand. It's not a request. It's a demand. And always, if you make a demand, be prepared to follow through with the what if, you know. So I remember we walked in there and, you know, his poor uh, admin assistant, I can't remember her name, but she was she was pretty shocked to see all of us uh, coming in there. her face. Her mouth was <laughs> hanging open. <laughs> and she said he wasn't in. And we said, OK, we'll wait for him then. And we just when we just walked in his office yeah. and sat down and I remember the press coming in and um, it was yes. a, the campus press and maybe a local station, but we had sent, um, we sent a letter, our demand letter. And then they had, I think it was Judy Ryan, maybe, uh, maybe the attorney for the university. Anyway, that she sounds right. ended up having to, um, I was telephone. Yeah, no cell phones back then or <laughs> no email. Yeah. I remember it was telephone. We got on the phone and she negotiated with um, the students. I can't remember which student was the spokesperson, but there was one person on the phone and she would say something and they'd look at the group and say, okay, what about this? What, you know, it was just negotiations. Yeah. That was in the, that was towards the end when they realized that, you know, we weren't going away and we had people's giving us food. We had a rope that went because the sixth floor of the law school building is where his office was. So we had a rope. I don't know how we fashioned a rope. I don't think it was sheets, but <laughs> no, I don't remember, but I know it worked. We had it and, out the window there. Yeah. Kathy's friend and somebody else came and they had food and they put it in a bag and put it on the rope and brought it up to us. And yeah. it was it was a it was a time. Um what else do you remember, Miko? Uh, well, uh, before we went over, we had been talking, and I had a friend, Eric Reeder, who was a cameraman, and he had just gotten a job at Fox, which was kind of an up and coming back then. And so I called him and told him what we were doing. And bless his heart, he turned up. And so we got some coverage on the news. Uh, and that was a really, um, it was it was so gratifying to get that sort of attention um, because it it wasn't all fun and games. There were moments when it I realized that this was quite a serious thing we were doing, and I remember they told us initially that President Patnod was not available, that he was at some reception or something, and at first he was not going to respond. But then we made it clear that we weren't leaving until he responded. And I don't know who it was, but someone took his very fancy wooden hanger for his suit coats and broke it apart for beaters and flipped the wastebasket. So we had a drum and beaters and we started drumming and singing, uh, which was great fun. 
and then uh, we did some a little bit of storytelling. We just passed the time telling each other stories. Yeah, and it was a great way to connect. Yeah, I remember that singing um, really being good medicine at the time because it was. It was fun and games and it was exil- our, our adrenaline was running, but it was also scary because we were technically breaking the law, right? <laughs> and I, my heart was um, scared for the students. Like I said, I didn't, I was not a student there. I wasn't an employee there. I didn't have any connection to USM. So it was a lot, I had less to lose than everyone else did. And um, yeah, that the storytelling was, I remember we, we shared a lot and um yeah, it's just, I have this picture in my mind of um, he had a beautiful globe on on the coffee table and we had a, somebody had a figurine of Pocahontas. And so we took a piece of paper and we wrote irate and we tied it on her hands like she was holding <laughs> up a flag that said irate and we put it on top of the globe and the news, it was either the news or the campus news took a picture of it. I remember seeing that that zooming in on Pocahontas on top of the world. And we just thought that was the funniest thing. So yeah, these I, stories I, really uh, lend some truth to that, that slogan I hear direct action brings satisfaction. Cause I can hear, you know, in your voices, as you recollect these stories, you know, that it was a really satisfying experience. And I'm just curious, Esther, did you already say what I rate stood for? That was the name of your, the group, what did yep. I stand for? Indigenous Resistance Against Tribal Extinction. And um, in preparing for this show, I, I went, um, my late uh, mother-in-law, Rini Attian, was part of our group. I learned so much from her. We all did. And uh, she had left me some archives. You know, she was like you, Maria, always with the archives. And I'm so grateful. <laughs> It's only a couple pieces, but I have an irate brochure and I have one of our newsletters. Um, and I had, for, you know, I had forgotten the things that we did, you know, um, in, in addition to that sit-in, the, the things that we did to help people. We helped Wabanaki youth at the, at the border um, that were trying to carry sacred objects across the border into Canada. We helped um, the Maine and Basket Makers Alliance um, by confronting some people that were non-native but were passing off baskets as native made. Um, you know, we did all kinds of things. We even did something at U- University of Maine, Orono, when they were, used to have this um, offensive party uh, where they would dress up like Indians. Mm-hmm. And we, we helped get some language into the anti-harassment policy. So, yeah, good times. <laughs> Long time ago. I was at U, um, not USM, UMO, 80 to 82, when Ted was still there. And Barry Dana was finishing up his um, educational teacher accreditation. And they gave him a hard time because he wanted to do a student teaching on the reservation school. And they told him he couldn't. And he fought it. You know, but I think all of these pieces are precious to the whole because it does show um, a steady effort over a long period of time. And it's hard sometimes to remember that we have gained ground. Sometimes we lost ground. Sometimes the ground we gained was small, but we kept on doing that. And now we're brought all the way forward after winning our case for a coordinator 
and having a presence in the multicultural center and uh, Donna Lauren was there for a year and, and wrote grants and got computers, mm-hmm. a bank of computers for use in the center. And Sue did tons of programming over the years. And she was very much a, a den mother and mm-hmm. uh, always advocating for students who continued over decades to encounter racist behavior toward them in courses from professors and uh, in the dorms. Mm-hmm. So, and now, and here we are now in the 21st century and uh, we're still working towards something better, but we've made progress. I really love um, how you framed that Miku when you said all of these pieces are precious to the whole and, you know, and throughout the, the telling of this um, history of activism at USM, you know, really highlighting the extraordinary barriers that Native students have to surmount. You know, that's really incredible. So now I'm curious because I'm just um, looking at the time and being mindful and time always flies right by, but um, there's some efforts happening now at USM and you're still involved, Miku. So that also speaks to your longevity and your commitment. Um, What is happening now at USM around the Native Student Coordinator and the the Land Acknowledgement Committee? Well, my understanding is the position was vacant for a period of time. But because I'm now a writer, you know, I went through graduate school also at USM, the Stone Coast program, and I continue to be uh, connected with that campus. I care about that school. It's part of my story as well. So I was looped into more recent efforts to uh, reinvigorate that and sort of redefine the the role. And it was initially advertised at a lower, um, a new coordinator for Native students at a lower salary. And when we heard about it, everyone said, well, that's how can you do that? That's like saying, well, sure, you can go to the University of Maine system as an indigenous person, but you won't have any support. Good luck. Um, so you can't really say that that is meaningful change if you then offer the position at a salary that doesn't give a person a decent means of supporting themselves. That's an empty mm-hmm. gesture, essentially, in, in my view. So we fought to mm-hmm. get that salary up. Um, and also interfacing with newer folks. And you can speak to that, Esther Ann, uh, newer hires that are helping the university to sort of navigate a more inclusive environment. Yeah, so this <clears throat> this recent effort, the Land Recognition Committee, um, the university is creating some, erecting some new buildings on campus. And, and they have um, <clears throat> at graduation this year, the provost for the first time at graduation read um, quite a heartfelt land acknowledgement. Uh, and so in making these buildings, they really wanted to have a representation of Wabanaki in these new buildings. So they <clears throat> assembled a Ask Katie Tomer, I believe, to assemble some community and university Native people to come together and think about how there was a small budget. You know, this is how much money you have. How can we use this to um, 
have a land acknowledgement representative in the building. So that that was probably a one conversation. I mean, it wasn't a big budget and we figured that out pretty quickly, but um, we kept meeting and came up with a lot of recommendations to really give that this um, gesture land acknowledgement more um, more behind it and more meaning. So one of the recommendations was to hire this native student coordinator because like we said, students have been without support and without connection with each other for several years. So the, the university made good on that. They, the land recognition committee had input on the job description, like Miku said, and on the salary range and um, really trying to make it institutionalize it again and make it a position that will will be sustained there on campus and maybe even grow um, the program there. The other recommendations they have, uh, the Land Recognition Committee had was things, you know, when it comes to space, really having uh, reclaiming space for native students, ensuring that that space has outdoor access so they can smudge, go outside and smudge when they want, and ways to bring Wabanaki into the university community, ways to honor Native people who graduate from the from USM and to lift them up, um, and also to have a full room and board grant reinstatement for all Native students, regardless of estimated family contribution and student aid. Um, that has been an issue that has been ongoing for almost a decade since 2012 when uh, significant changes were made to the um, <clears throat> tuition waiver and the, the room and board um, scholarship of the tuition waiver. So there's, you know, 15 recommendations is, is um, it's visionary and it's, and it's exciting to see how these recommendations are being received by USM leadership and how seriously I, I believe that they're taking them. Well, that certainly feels hopeful. It does. Uh, I, um, I wondered if we could just back up for a second for people who are listening and may not understand you talked about the room and board, be, the room and board being reinstated. Did you want to explain that a little bit more? So in 2012, there was some changes that were made. The, the tuition waiver, um, and Miko probably can speak to this uh, more eloquently than I can, but the tuition waiver used to include full Roman board grant. So Native students got a tuition waiver and Roman board, which included a meal plan. And since 2012, there have been changes made so that they, they're not just entitled to that, um, they have to apply for financial aid. FAFSA, and then their uh, Roman board is dependent on their financial and family contribution. So the, the result has been um, several instances of uh, young people, Wabanaki youth in school, and they, they, are, they can't afford all of their, their uh, financial aid is being used for their Roman board, and then their or not, and they, they're not able to support themselves. There were stories of young um, students living in homeless shelters and you know they had tuition waivers so they could go to school, but they didn't have any support. Um, and maybe Miko, you wanna talk more, you probably know some, some more stories than I do. Well, you know, I did hear about instances with that because I was working um, 
on getting back in in uh, 08, 09, getting into grad school with Sue Hamilton. And she shared a lot of that with me of things that were going on. Um, and I think that we part of the problem here is that we had lack of institutional access to people who could influence policy. So we were sort of stuck always in a mode of uh, sort of making an announcement or, or being uh, uh, deemed a, a squeaky wheel. Um, and so, and again, I think that's another empty gesture. Um, if you uh, say you're going to support someone, we need to have access to those people in an administration that are capable of helping that change occur. Otherwise, you're just spinning your wheels. And we were doing that. And I remember I was older. And so I was off campus, but I had a meal plan, which made a huge difference for me um, because I was self-supporting. Um, and I had a brother at the time very ill um, and he passed. And so I was a lot of what I earned was going to other places that had higher priorities in my life. And so that meal card meant a lot to me because I was working and going to school at night and I couldn't get time to go home, you know, bring my food or what have you. So being able to go to the calf and, and uh, maybe meet someone and have a social support and, and have a meal really meant something. And when they take those supports away, you can see how impactful it becomes. Yeah, there, there was a group at USM uh, several years ago um, called IPI. And of course, I can't remember what that stands for, but they did some, they pulled the data off USM's website and you could see a significant drop in enrollment from 2012 on of Wabanaki students because of the changes to this tuition waiver. And then that uh, coupled with the <clears throat> this position for native student support being unfulfilled, uh, not filled all these years um, has left quite a lot of Native students that have either not been able to make it through um, to graduation or have had to do it and get support from other places. And, you know, it's just really a shame when <clears throat> we had a meeting with um, the President Cummins several years ago and, and gathered some, because I work at USM now, I'm a staff person there, and we gathered some, um, gathered him and some Native students and there were two Native students there and they're like, I've been here three years and this is the first time I've ever seen another Native student. So those, you know, kind of things that are, are real hard to track and they're real hard to evaluate, but those are those intangible, invaluable connections that help Native students um, succeed in these institutions. And the reinstatement of this coordinator, um, is, I'm hopeful, will, will, will remedy that and hopefully you know, um, the U USM will work towards a full reinstatement, if not for the entire uh, system, but for USM campus, that would be, you know, it would be wonderful if USM, you know, they, I think they really want to be a place that Native people want to be at. And they're, I believe that they're working towards that. You are listening to Don Land Signal. Uh, excuse me, you are listening to Donland Signals on WERU-FM. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard, along with co-host 
Esther Ann. Don Land Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today we're talking about the history of Native activism at USM with our special guest, Miku Paul of Maliseet First Nation. I'm sorry, I think I interrupted you, Miku. What were you about to say? Well, my question to you both is, um, I had one meeting with Glenn Cummings, President Cummings, over the lack of Indigenous faculty at the Stone Coast MFA program. But I would be interested to hear your impressions um, of uh, his commitment to true inclusion at that campus. Um, because we all know, if you've been there long enough, Esther Ann's seen this, for a while it seemed like USM had a revolving door of presidents. And uh, they were constantly reorganizing and sometimes it just didn't work well at all. Selma Botman, I think, is an example of that. Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear what your impressions are in terms of what his commitment might be. Um, <clears throat> I think that that he's committed. Um, I think that he's being pushed more than he expected to. And I, I really, I, I think that some of the staff people that have come on recently are are also committed and they're they're able to keep pushing that um you know the new provost janine um I, i'm so bad with names will johnson um in in the you know and then there's idac so there there are some things that have happened structurally at usm that will i think be able to carry this work and one of the recommendations from the lrc was to you know, to have for the university to financially support a, a committee like the LRC, a native needs committee or people that are there to keep yeah. keep pushing um, these recommendations and keep pushing the work. I mean, it's it's always hard for me not to be hopeful. So <laughs> so I might not be the best person to answer it. Um, but change is so incremental that it's easy to lose hope and it's easy to, to give up. But uh, I've been at USM for, geez, 18 years now. And um, things are better in some ways um, as far as structures, but it feels like we're back to the square one with getting the support for the Native students again. So like you said, Miko, there's a step forward, the step back, and um, always trying to see the big picture and how all of these pieces do come together. Kind of like the cha-cha, right? Yeah, <laughs> step <forward and> back. <laughs> but thank goodness for the people, you know, and it seems in hearing these stories that there's this growing body of people who are, you know, pushing um, the president, pushing the school, pushing this agenda, you know, and staying committed for the for the long haul to make sure that Native students get the support that they deserve. So kudos to everyone who's involved in that. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, from my perspective, it, being on that, I served on the LRC with Miku and, and just seeing and hearing the critical thinking and analysis coming from the young Native students. It so just, oh, isn't it? I, I get all choked up when I think about it. It's beautiful. It is. Plus, some of us are getting on and we're tired. <laughs> it's time for the young yeah. ones to step in. You know, I'm thinking about this. I, I looked at a little bit of history 
for USM, the first degrees were awarded in 1880. Wow. Okay. The inception was 1879. So think of that date and we've come forward into the 21st century. And if you make the jump, you see that there is progress, but there is part of me that is disappointed that it isn't more progress. Um, And I wish that the institution could imagine the value of our contribution as part of that community rather than viewing it as just another line item in the budget that they have to plan for. I think that's the shift in awareness that needs to take place. And the only way I feel that can take place is if we continue the conversation. Mm-hmm. So this almost um, is a perfect segue to the the last uh, question that we were hoping to explore today. And that being, what are your hopes for the future for Native students at USM? And I'd love to hear from you also, Esther, as somebody who has been involved as well. But Miko, hope um, for the future? If I want to get into specifics, I would say that I would love to see the Stone Coast Writing Program be more inclusive and work harder to have Indigenous faculty visiting or otherwise I brought the first Indigenous faculty ever to that program as a senior, and that was Bill Yellowrobe, who passed not long ago. Um, I was astounded as a senior to learn that they hadn't had any. Um, So I think it's that, but also I would love to, to see, which I did in working with the committee and with Katie, the young people coming up. They have uh, their education, they're finishing school, and they're moving into positions of influence and responsibility. So that continuity is fabulous. And that's what I hope to continue seeing. Um, One example for me would be Andrea Francis Mi'kmaq, who finished social work, um, her degree, she had to do a sort of an incomplete and finish her keystone, but now, Andrea's working for uh, Maine Health Access Foundation, and she's settled in mm-hmm. Portland with her son, and she has a good job and a future, and she's also active locally in our off-reservation community. And that's what I really uh, love seeing. It gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. I, um... and I, also have, I was just going to oh, well... say, I also have to brag that Andrea is also a volunteer with Maine Wabanaki Reach. So yeah, we know Andrea's work well. I'm sorry, you were going to say, Esther? Um, you know, I really, in the LRC meeting, uh, Gail Sacco, Dana Sacco was part of that too. And I really, um, thinking about some of her words and, and how how passionately she spoke about this, about the University of Southern Maine really incorporated Wabanaki into the the campus and not just students, but the Wabanaki community. So it could be, because there there is no space in Portland for Wabanaki to gather. And there's so many Wabanaki down there. 
so that USM could become this hub. You know, they could help um, restore their relationships. They can help with that transfer of knowledge from generation to generation and just really embrace and let Wabanaki embrace that university and recognize and honor graduates and have, you know, big celebrations. And um, that that's that's one of my hopes. And, and if we want to talk specific programmatic um, hopes, uh, I have always wanted a community service component tied to the tuition waiver because a lot of um, <clears throat> descendants use people from our communities use the tuition waiver, but we also have a lot of descendants that use the, and a lot of them don't necessarily have any contact with the tribe to which they're descended of. And it would be wonderful if uh, any native student that came in on the tuition waiver was connected to a tribe or a tribal community or a tribal organization, and were able to, to give back and also learn and make those connections so that there's more meaning behind that tuition waiver and they understand where that tuition waiver comes from because of these land grab universities and how it's it's not a handout <laughs> you know it's to me in my mind it's a reparation to repair some of the harm and to pay back um Wabanaki because of the land that was taken to build these universities mm -hmm. so though that's something i've always wanted to see operationalized What are your ideas, Maria? Oh, you threw me off here. I am taking notes about things that you guys are saying. <laughs> you know, I uh, actually uh, worked for uh, several years with the Wabanaki Center at the University of Maine. So I can appreciate there being, um, you know, a, a gathering place for Native students and, you know, an office or a department specifically uh, focused on helping Native students. So um, I would love to see that grow at USM and really at all of these colleges and universities, you know, in Wabanaki, I'm thinking about this conversation and how it might be helpful, you know, to people who are listening that are part of other universities and colleges to hear, you know, this, this history and this, um, you know, slow and progressive march to change. So, um, yeah, I, I hear what all you were saying about, you know, the inclusion of indigenous faculty and staff and, you know, I, the continuity of young people who are, you know, starting to lead the charge now and who, what a relief that is, <laughs> you know, it's really heartening to, to witness that. So yeah, the beat goes on. It does. So we have, uh, I'm just looking at the time, and it looks like we have maybe about six or seven uh, minutes together before we, we close. And so just, um, you know, any, any um, last thoughts or um, anything that you want to share with us, Miku, before we think about close, wrapping up the program? Uh, well, you know, as a writer, uh, one of the things I do anyway um, I really am feeling I'm editor of Don Land Voices now 2.0 online. And that was the sort of child of Don Land Voices, the text, which was a seminal text that Siobhan Sr. at UNH put together with all the tribes and community editors and very special book. 
But I realized that in order for me, I'm always beating the bushes for submissions that I need to grow more Wabanaki writers. Um, And so that is something that I'm hoping to do in the coming years. COVID threw a wrench into some of that, but I think that with the largest city in the state and USM being where it is, it's uniquely situated to support those efforts. And also I want to put a plug in here that Morgan Talty, I believe mm-hmm. Penobscot, actually went through Stone Coast woo-hoo, as well yeah. and won a main literary award recently. And we are actually presenting his work at Footlights Theater up in Bath, I think in October, with a reading of some of his stories. I've been invited to participate in that. So that's that is something, cool. yeah, I really am committed to doing before I walk on. Um, I'm hoping to get institutional support and find ways to grow more Wabanaki writers. That's wonderful. And I'm so glad that you mentioned Morgan Talty because he was a guest of ours a few months back here on oh. Dawnland Signals. Yeah. With, um, with other uh, Wabanaki authors, uh, Suzanne Greenlaw and Gabe oh. Fry. And I did want to give an update because I just learned recently that his book is going to be released in July of next year called night of the living res. So oh, yeah. I'm so looking forward to that. I love Miko. that you shared that he went through Maine through Stone Coast. Be sure, Miku, be sure to share um, that information with us about the event in October, and we'll make sure to put it on Wabanaki Reach's um, listserv and in our social media and share it with people. That sounds Excellent. like a wonderful event. Thank you. I will. I'll and we did, do that. And we didn't even get into talking about, you know, Miku Paul the author and the writer. And um, I I just love the work that you do. You've been um, involved with Wabanaki Reach in a few different ways. Um, You know, when we did the Genocide in Me um, presentation in Portland several years ago, and you read a beautiful, heartfelt poem, and uh, you also offered some uh, creative workshops in our wellness gathering a couple years ago in Portland. And I really appreciate your... um, your passion for writing. So maybe that's a topic for another time. Cause every time that we're, we're together on Don land signals, we always have to say, Hey, maybe that's a topic for another time. I would love to have a show, you know, that's devoted to poetry and having just some light conversation and some readings. So. And don't forget, knocking at your door again. <laughs> don't forget um, Miko's play uh, part in Indian radio days. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that was so much fun. Wasn't it? That was a blast. Yep. Have you done any playwriting, Miko? Or I'm working on something, and I haven't talked about it much. I started with Daniel Burson because um, I really think we need a play about residential school stuff, and it's called "The Last Thing Taken." And I have got a very strong first scene, but I want a uh, regular three act, not a ten minute play. And so I'm working on it. It's a lot harder than I thought. And bless Bill Yellowrobe. I don't know how he did it. Um, But I'm so glad that he decided to come to Maine in his final years uh, because he really lit a fire under some people. And uh, he was a brilliant man. 
Yeah, he was. It's such a profound loss. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, any other closing thoughts? Um, I just wanted to say that we will share on our website links to Donland Voices and um, the things that Miko has mentioned so people can have um, access to that. And I, I really love that idea of cultivating you know, Wabanaki writers. I think that's, and I love the idea of a screenplay because I love doing things like acting. So if you ever need any help, let me know. I wouldn't mind a beta reader. Yeah. I could use a beta reader because when I presented it, it was all non-Indigenous other people and some of the things they just didn't get. Oh, I, I, I don't honored. want to make changes just because Wanooch people don't get my scene. You know what that's I mean? That's right. Oh, I'd be honored right. to do that. Okay, great. Miku, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion. It's really, it's been a lot of fun reminiscing and hearing those stories and, and hearing about the work that you've been doing. So thanks so much for, for joining us. And uh, it's time for us to say thank you to the listeners for joining us on Don Land Signals. And thank you to our volunteer technician, Jeffrey Hodgkiss, for his assistance and support. Be sure to join us next month, October 21st, and every third Thursday of the month for Dawnland Signals and more conversations of truth, healing, and change. Stay tuned for more great programming here on WERU-FM. Up-chitch. Up-chitch. Up-chitch.